0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath, actually. Good afternoon, and happy Sabbath to all of you. Um, it's a pleasure to be in the house of the Lord and on this beautiful day, isn't it? Sorry, my screen is a little too big here. I'm trying to figure this out. Alrighty, as you can see, the title of my study this morning is "That I May Dwell Among Them." Uh, but before we open the word of the Lord, shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer to ask the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to be with us. Father in heaven, I once again ask that your presence will be among our midst today. We ask that every word that proceeds from my mouth may not be mine, but yours. We ask for your angels to grace this place for your spirit to touch the hearts and the ears of everyone here. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you teach us to obey you, to love you in return for all that you've done for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, before Adam and Eve sinned, God communicated with them face-to-face, didn't he? He talked to them like we would with a friend. He walked in the garden with them. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed, we know that everything changed, didn't it? Fallen humanity could no longer stand in the presence of a holy and sinless God. But did God abandon man? Of course not. God continued. To pursue man, he continued to communicate with his disobedient children. God loved us so much, he wanted to restore that broken relationship. Even in this sinful world, he wanted to restore and continue that relationship. We see that God continued to speak to his people throughout time. Even right after Cain killed his brother Abel, We see that God came and spoke to Abel. He asked Cain, I'm sorry, where is Abel, your brother? And of course, in scripture, we see right on from Genesis through Revelation, we see time and time again how God communicates, he reaches out to us. God talked to Noah, we know. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. God sent countless prophets over the uh, over the ages to speak to his people. We know all those stories of how God reached out time and time again. And then when um, God called his people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, we see that God took a step further. He not only communicated with them, but he also wanted to be among them, to dwell among them. So what do you think, uh, why was the reason God asked Moses to build a sanctuary? Let's read once again from Exodus 25.8. And I have the, the Bible text on the screen, but feel free to turn to them in uh, your Bibles, and I'll give you a few moments. But let's read together what uh, the read, Exodus 25.8. And God said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So it's clear here that God wanted to not only speak to his people, but he also wanted to be with them, to dwell among them. And of course, we all know about the sanctuary. That's a beautiful study in and of itself. Unfortunately, we don't have the time even to scratch the surface today. But we know God gave very specific details on how the tabernacle was going to be built. And later on, when Solomon was building the temple, we know that, again, God provided very detail, very specific details. We know with the tabernacle, there was a courtyard, there was a holy place, there was the most holy place. And we know that each area had a special function, a, sp- a special role. And it all reflected on and represented something greater, didn't it? Every article in the sanctuary had a purpose, and it all pointed to the work of redemption. And of course, the Lamb of God that was going to be slain. We also know that God gave, like I mentioned before, very specific details. Nothing was left uh, for the builders to guess or imagine. So that tells us that God is a God of order. He is a God of purpose. He is. and he. Um, Is a God of order in every area. So let's look briefly at how God viewed the sanctuary. How did God regard the sanctuary and how did God want his people to view or regard this meeting place? Exodus 49 tells us, and you shall, and this is talking about again from Exodus 25 onwards, there's a lot of detail on uh, the sanctuary, and God provides a lot of insight. He just uh, lays everything out for us in Exodus, and in Exodus 49, talking about even the utensils that were used in the sanctuary, God says, and you shall make the anointing oil. So there was going to be anointing oil, and everything in the tabernacle, and Let me read it directly from here. Exodus 49, And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and its utensils, and it should be holy. So we see here that God intended for his tabernacle to be holy and for even the utensils in it to be holy. Did God have any requirements for the priests and the people? What did God require of the priests when they went into the sanctuary? What were the priests' attitudes to be and what were the people's attitudes to be? Let's take a brief look at that. The, for the priests, did they need to make any preparations before they came before the Lord? Exodus 40, verse 32. And again, if you would like to turn, it, turn to these texts in your Bibles, are you all able to see from back there? Is it clear here? Um, Exodus 40 verse 32 says, whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, we see here that Aaron and his sons were asked to wash themselves before they entered the tabernacle. God wanted them to make preparations, isn't it, before they came before the the holy and awesome God. How about the people? Exodus 19:10 and 11 tells us Then the Lord said to Moses Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready the third day For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people So did God require his people to make any preparations before they came before him Yes Clearly, the Lord wanted his people to remember that they were coming before a holy God and that they were to put away their sins. We see a lot of that in Exodus, and I have—I just pulled out a few verses only. Uh, it's a beautiful study if you have the time to go through that. Uh, due to the lack of time, I just pulled out a few verses here, but we see that God required his people to make some preparations. So... From what, the few texts we've read so far, we can see that we have a loving God that wants to dwell with his people. A God, we have a God of order, and a God who cares even about the little things. He's interested in the little things in our lives, and he's interested even in the little things in the entire universe, isn't he? We also see that we have a God who makes a distinction between the holy and the common, and he wants us to do the same. God wants his people to remember that when we meet with him, we are meeting a holy God. When we come into his presence, we are meeting an awesome and holy God. And keep in mind that when Moses, when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, God asked Moses to take off his sandals because he was in a holy place. Let's now for a moment look at what the heavenly courts look like. How are things done in heaven? What does heaven look like? How do the beings who come before God, how do they behave? Revelation 4 and 5 gives us some insight into this. And again, I've just taken a few verses, but at your, when you have time, I would encourage you to read it out and study it out for yourself. So Revelation 4, verses 2 to 4 reads, and this is John saying, Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Moving on to Revelation 4, 8 through 11. The four living creatures, having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before him, before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So I see some very important points here. That these 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him. Get a slight glimpse of what Heaven, The heavenly courts are like, isn't it? Revelation 5, 13 to 14. And if you would like, do you like time to turn in your Bibles or is is it all right on the screen here? Revelation 5, 13 through 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on the sea and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sit on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures, which we read about before, said amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. What a beautiful picture of heaven, isn't it? So this tells us a lot, doesn't it? So these creatures, God's creation... That has no sin in them. Remember, they are sinless. They are unfallen. Yet, they show reverence and adoration to God, don't they? They fall down and bow before God. They humble themselves. And we who are sinless, how should we approach this holy and awesome God? if these unfallen beings worship him day and night, they praise him and thank him continually, and they fall down before God, humbling themselves, does that tell us something? Does that tell us how we need to approach the Holy God? Let's take a look for a moment at how Jesus viewed the temple Matthew 21, 13 tells us, and Jesus is saying here, and he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And we know the story how Jesus had to cast out the merchants in the tabernacle, in the temple, because they, had, uh, they were selling wares and they, his house was being desecrated. Isaiah 56, 7 pre, pretty much reiterates the same thing. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So what did the Lord call his house? Of, his house? A house of prayer for all nations, isn't it? Does God meet with us today when we worship in his house? Matthew eighteen twenty tells us, For where there are two or three gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Although we don't have the tabernacle or the temple that was in Jerusalem or in the uh, in wilderness back in the days of old, God promises that where two or three are gathered in his name, He is there with us. So, if God is in our midst, what should our attitude be toward God today? How should we treat his meeting place with us? How should we prepare to meet with him, or do we need to prepare to meet with him? How should we conduct ourselves when we come into his presence? If God required the Israelites of old to differentiate between the holy and the common, if God wanted them to make preparations before they came to meet with him, if God taught them and told them to regard the temple or the tabernacle of old as holy, and if the unfallen beings in heaven humble themselves before they come before God and bow down and worship him, if these unfallen beings recognize the awesomeness and the goodness of God, how must we? Has God changed? Is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? He is, isn't he? Psalms eighty-nine seven tells us, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. This spoke to me a lot, and this message is for me because as I studied this through, I realized how much I fail, how much I need to reform. Again, Psalms 89.7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. Precious words. God has given us more light. Um in later, in, for us living in these last days. And in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, Chapter 5, and again, I pulled out just a few quotes. There's a lot that she, has, she speaks about the sanctuary, the church, and how we uh, should um, conduct ourselves in the house of the Lord. And if you have the time, I would strongly urge you to study this out for yourselves. It's a beautiful study due to the shortness of time and I don't want to bore you so I pulled out on just a few quotes here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, all Ellen White's writings are available online free of charge. If you need to um, know how to get to the website, i will be happy to show you. But let's read from Testimonies to the Church Volume 5. From the sacredness which was attached to the earthly sanctuary, Christians may learn how they should regard the place where the Lord meets with his people. There has been a great change, not for the better, but for the worse, in the habits and customs of the people in reference to religious worship. The precious, the sacred, things which connect us with God are fast losing their hold upon our minds and hearts and are being brought down to the level of common things. The reverence which the people had anciently for the sanctuary where they met with God in sacred service has largely passed away. Nevertheless, God himself gave the order of his service, exalting it high above everything of a temporal nature. When the worshippers enter the place of meeting, they should do so with decorum, passing quietly to their seats. If there is a stove in the room, and of course, back then, uh, the stove was what heated the room where that, that they worship, It is not proper to crowd about in an indolent, careless attitude. Common talking, whispering, and laughing should not be permitted in the house of worship, either before or after the service. Ardent, active piety should characterize the worshippers. If some have to wait a few minutes before the meeting begins, let them maintain a true spirit of devotion by silent meditation, keeping the heart uplifted to God in prayer, that the service may may be of special benefit to their own hearts and lead to the conviction and conversion of other souls they should remember that the heavenly messengers are in the house. She goes on to say, We all lose much sweet communion with God by our restlessness, by not encouraging moments of reflection and prayer. The mind should be prepared to hear the word of God, that it may have due weight and suitably impress the heart. The spiritual condition needs to be often reviewed and the mind and the heart drawn toward the Son of Righteousness. If when the people come into the house of worship, they have genuine reverence for the Lord and bear in mind that they are in His presence, there will be a sweet eloquence in silence. The whispering and laughing and talking, which might be without sin in a common business place, should find no sanction in the house where God is worshipped. She goes on to encourage parents to elevate the standard of Christianity in the minds of your children. Help them to weave Jesus into their experience. Teach them to have the highest reverence for the house of God and to understand that when they enter the Lord's house, it should be with hearts that are softened and subdued by thoughts as these. God is here. This is his house. And before we encourage children, we as adults need to uh, remember that God is here and it is his house, and we need to uh, encourage them through example firstly, isn't it? We must encourage our youth and ourselves that we need to have pure thoughts and the holiest motives, because God looks at our hearts and our motives, doesn't he? I must have no pride, envy, jealousy, evil surmising, hatred, or deception in my heart, for I am coming into the presence of a holy God. Do we take time each Sabbath morning to look inside ourselves to make sure we have no pride, no envy, no jealousy, no hatred, no deception, remembering we are coming into the presence of a holy God? This is the place where God meets and blesses his people. Do we want his blessing? We do, don't we? When the benediction is pronounced, and again, I'm still continuing from Testimonies to the Church, Chapter uh, Volume 5, Chapter 55. When the benediction is pronounced, all should still be quiet, as if fearful of losing the presence of Christ. Let all pass out without jostling or loud talking, feeling that they are in the presence of God, that his eye is resting upon them. And that they must act as his, as in His visible presence. This spoke to me personally. How often I forget that we, I am in the presence of God and His holy angels. I, uh, how much I need to reform to remember that I am in His visible presence. Let there be no stopping in the aisles to visit or gossip, thus blocking them up so that the others cannot pass out. The precincts of the church should be invested with a sacred reverence. It should not be made a place to meet old friends and visit and introduce common thoughts and worldly business transactions. These should be left outside the church. It is too true that reverence for the house of God has become almost extinct. Isn't that so true today? Sacred things and places are not discerned and the holy and exalted are not appreciated. God gave rules of order, perfect and exact to his ancient people, and we can read all about that in Exodus, can't we? He ha- has his character changed? Is he not the great and almighty God who rules the heavens of heavens? Would it not be well for us often to read the directions given by God himself to the Hebrews, that we who have the light of the glorious truth shining upon us may imitate their reverence for the house of God. We have abundant reason to maintain a fervent, devoted spirit in the worship of God. We have reason to be even more thoughtful and reverential in our worship than had the Jews. And she's speaking speaking to us who are in the last days. We have even more reason to be thoughtful and reverential than did the Jews. And Christ himself said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Jews, you in no wise will enter the kingdom of God. Again, continuing from Testimonies to the Church, chapter 55, Brethren, will you not devote a little thought to this subject? and notice how you conduct yourself in the house of God and what efforts you're making by precept and example to cultivate reverence in your children. Can we make any changes to anything we do? Can we make changes to our hearts, to our actions by ourselves? We cannot do anything to please God, can we? Philippians 2.13 reminds us, For it is God which worketh in you to both will and to do of his good pleasure. So even the will to be obedient to him has to come from him, isn't it? Do we have a part to play? We do. What is our part? Surrender our will to him, right? Just ask him to take our will. Sister White tells us that we can ask him to take our wills because of ourselves we cannot even give him our will. Zechariah 4.6 reminds us again, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I want to go back again for a moment to the last quote from the Spirit of Prophecy that I read, where she says, brethren, will you not devote a little thought to this subject? So what is God asking us? He's asking us only to think about it, to give a little thought to it. And notice how we conduct ourselves in the house of God. And if we are willing to surrender our wills to him, he has promised to work in us, to will and to do his good pleasure, hasn't he? He will help us make the changes. He will create in us that desire. First of all, we need that desire to make the change before we can make a change, right? And even that desire comes from him. We want to please God in everything, don't we? because that's our ultimate goal, isn't it? To please God and to be a blessing to one another. The only way we can do that is to ask God to create in us a clean heart and renew in us that right spirit. In conclusion, I just want to read a promise from, go back to uh, Philippians 2 and read a quote from uh, Philippians 2, 12 to 15. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, and this is Paul writing, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I think those are important words that we need to think about our own salvation. We need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not that our actions are going to save us, and we all know that it is. Um, We are not saved by our works, but there is a work for us to do in collaboration with the Lord. For it is God who works in you to both will and to do his good pleasure, like we read before. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. So as his people, we are called to be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's a high calling, isn't it? To be children of God without fault. If we think deeply, how is it, how can we be without fault? We are called to be without fault. But how can we be without fault? Through the grace of God, it is possible, isn't it? Because God does not call us to do anything that he has not equipped us to do. Everything he has called us to do, he also provides with it the ability to accomplish that goal, isn't it? And uh, Paul goes on to say, among whom you shine as lights of the world. In these last days... If we are not lights in this dark world, we have not met our goal. We have not reached our purpose, isn't it? So may God give us the desire to yield our wills to him, first and foremost. And when we yield our wills to him, he will then create in us the desire to be obedient to him. Because we can't obey him of our own. We don't want to do what is right. Our sinful natures desire to do what is opposed to the will of God. But through God's grace, if we all we need to do is surrender our will and He will do in us His good pleasure. Amen. Amen.